2: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, September 23rd. This week, we're turning the tables on the BOF Podcast as our chief correspondent, Lauren Sherman, quizzes me about how big luxury brands go about choosing and appointing new creative directors. It's a topic in the ether at the moment, with a yet-to-be-announced successor for Virgil Abloh at Louis Vuitton menswear, And the rumors circulating about a potential change at Burberry, where Ricardo Tisci's contract is up for renewal in the coming months. So without further ado, here's Lauren Sherman asking me the questions on the BOF podcast.
3: Hello, and welcome to The Debrief from the Business of Fashion, where each week we go deep on our most popular BOF professional stories with the correspondents who created them. I'm Lauren Sherman. Fashion can feel like an endless game of musical chairs, with major luxury brands constantly on the hunt for the freshest, most in-demand talent to take their sales to the next level. Recently, there have been reports that Burberry is looking to replace Ricardo Tichy, who joined the company five years ago from Givenchy. Former Bottega Veneta designer Daniel Lee is rumored to be at the top of that shortlist. Then there's Louis Vuitton, the biggest fashion brand in the world, which has been looking for a successor to the late Virgil Abloh for nearly a year now. But how does a company like LVMH, which owns Louis Vuitton, go about finding that key person? Today, I'm joined by EOF founder and editor-in-chief Imran Ahmed to lay out the questions companies ask when they are hiring a new creative director. Imran, thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
2: I have never been on your podcast before, so it's a pleasure. I'm so honored that you invited me.
3: It's very exciting. Well, you were the perfect person to talk about this. So you've been working in this business for, what, around 15 years? Yeah. And you've covered a lot of these appointments. You've witnessed a lot of this going down. Why do you think fashion is such a stage for musical chairs?
2: I mean, ultimately, I think it comes down to the fact that no matter how big a fashion business becomes it still requires creative talent to fuel that business. So whether you're like a a small fledgling designer trying to like make your mark and get attention and get people interested, and that's what we're designers here in London are known for. And it's usually their creativity that really gets people interested and kind of draws people in. Or you're a designer at the helm of a major label. Your role is ultimately to fuel the business, take it forward, excite customers, create interest, you know, design beautiful, desirable products. And without the creative energy, without that kind of excitement, there's nothing to sell. And, you know, creativity is really the lifeblood of fashion. So when it comes to these appointments, when it works and a designer stays for a long time, at some point, no matter how successful a designer has been, it needs a refresh, right? And it needs something new to kind of get people interested again after a certain kind of aesthetic template or vision or approach is no longer of interest or has become a bit formulaic. And other appointments don't work out. And it becomes pretty clear early on that another change needs to be made. And so Because creativity is so fundamental, like this is not just any ordinary job in a business. This is like the job. And so it's because the jobs are so important and it's because creative talent that can do these jobs is so limited.
3: We've established that every one of these situations is unique and this piece I recently wrote that you edited, we kind of walked through, there are some similarities in how they choose these creative directors. Can you talk a bit about what the first question is that these executives and the stewards of the brands need to ask, whether or not it's something like a Virgil Abloh who passed away and needed to be replaced in, I would say, a more sensitive way, or if it's Daniel leaving Bottega Veneta and being replaced by his number two. Those are two very different situations, but I'm assuming the question that the executives are asking when they're looking for a successor are the same.
2: Yeah. And as you say, each of these situations has its own nuances, that each brand has its own personality, has a you know different situation. But ultimately, I think the first question is, is the brand, is the CEO, are the brand owners looking for evolution or revolution? So let's talk about revolution. And the best example of this, I think, is Gucci. Back When Tom Ford took over Gucci in the 90s, he injected it with this. I mean, I remember in the 90s, like Tom Ford and Gucci was everything. The ad campaigns, the fashion shows, the glamour, the sex, like everything was so well executed and it created such a storm, such desire that everyone wanted a piece of it. When Tom ended up leaving the business about 10 years later, there was a real question to ask about what to do. It happened quite suddenly. I mean, Tom and his partner, Domenico De Sole, they wanted to stay on, but they couldn't work out an agreement with the owners. And so the decision then was, well, we're going to continue in the Tom Ford vein. And they appointed someone named Frida Giannini. And Frida kind of quite effectively evolved that Tom Ford formula for another 10 years. But by that point, that formula had become pretty well worn i think tom ford had already relaunched his own brand in beauty and ultimately in fashion and i think the executives at gucci when you know when frida ended up leaving they were looking for something revolutionary they were looking for a big jolt and you know when i've spoken to marco bizzari the ceo of gucci in the past he's told me that they really wanted to make gucci relevant from a fashion perspective again And so in order to do that, they needed a complete shift away from what Tom Ford and then Frida had continued doing for almost 20 years before that. So that's the one situation, revolution. And you can see how well that's worked for Gucci. It's propelled the brand to, I think, probably the biggest growth spurt we've seen from any major luxury brand in the last 10 years. Like I think when that happened, everyone was kind of completely taken by surprise because the aesthetic wasn't something that everyone understood at the beginning. And now anywhere you look, anytime you see that, you know, that's the Gucci aesthetic. Evolution works differently. Evolution works when you have a brand formula that's still really working. And maybe the designer leaves a bit prematurely before the heat in that formula has worn out, before customers have stopped Maybe paying as much attention. And so when Hedy Sliman exited Saint Laurent, it was a formula that worked. There was an aesthetic energy in that template. And when they decided to bring in Anthony Vaccarello to take over, it was really because he had a kind of synergy, an aesthetic synergy with that formula that Hedy Sliman put in place. And of course, Anthony's taken it in his own direction. and the Saint Laurent executives are always very purposeful about pointing out that it's not just taking Hedy's thing and doing copy-paste, copy-paste, but it's certainly true that when you walk into that store, there's still some of the framework and aesthetic vision that you know, Hedy Sliman put in place. It's still present in some form. And you know Anthony's kind of added to it and evolved it and prope- you can't keep it static, right? In neither of these situations is it about keeping it still. You still have to move it forward. And so that's kind of the main question, evolution or revolution. And now when we think about the decision that the folks at Vuitton have ahead of them, it's gonna be really interesting to figure out how they wanna to respond to Virgil's legacy because he created such a revolution there. And one would argue that sadly he left and he passed away prematurely. And so I'm expecting an evolution there, but I guess it remains to be seen.
3: Curious to know what you think an interesting one is Celine because when Phoebe Philo left, she had been there for 10 years. You could say that maybe it was feeling like creatively it was her end, but commercially you could argue it wasn't. I think the fact that no one has really replaced her with that customer, maybe the role is proof of that. But then Hedy Slaman came into Celine and totally redid it. And they definitely lost many of the Phoebe Philo customers, but they gained a whole new group. It was very disruptive. It was almost more disruptive in some ways than a Gucci because people wanted Gucci to change so badly. When do you think that kind of situation is appropriate? Is it when it's just like an amazing designer and it's worth betting on them?
2: Well, it's hard to make sense of that one actually. In In retrospect, right? Because I think when it happened, there was almost like a mourning period for all those philophiles who lost access to this brand that they loved. And I remember they had those like gatherings at Paris Fashion Week where it was was really like grief, like collective grief. You know, one could argue that given the heat that Celine had as a brand and that people still wanted more of it, that was a surprising decision. You know, it was a surprising decision not to find someone who could continue to develop the ideas that Phoebe had laid down so powerfully when she first took over there in 2007 or 2008. I can't remember exactly the year. I think that situation comes down to a very particular talent. And there had been an ongoing back and forth between caring and LVMH about which of those two very powerful luxury groups had Hetty Sleeman as a designer in their portfolio and you know he's a pretty exacting designer i had a very interesting dinner with him once in uh, los angeles which was all off the record but you know from that conversation i just i really understood he's got such a strong exacting precise determined and clear vision And he knows what he wants to do. And I think in order perhaps to win him back into the LVMH stable, they had to give him something really big. So not only did they enable him to completely rewrite everything that Phoebe put in place, they enabled him to launch menswear under a brand that had only been known for womenswear, which I think they saw as a big commercial opportunity. And I think at the time, Mr. Arnault set some pretty ambitious sales targets for that business that, you know, ultimately I think didn't happen as quickly, but now, you know, it seems to be working quite well. And I was a big fan of what Phoebe did at Celine, but I have to say like, one of my favorite places to buy things that fit me, that I really like that have a timeless aesthetic is Hedy Sliman Celine. So although there was a lot of grief and I think a lot of us in the industry were sad to see her go, and we didn't understand why that happened, I think with a little bit of time, you kind of get used to it and you understand the decision in retrospect a little bit better, especially since he's creating some really quite beautiful, timeless products.
3: Yeah, it feels like such an innocent time five years ago.
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been
0: loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
4: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
1: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, stitch. Visit ebay.com for terms.
3: So once they figure out who they want, and maybe they have two candidates, what are the skills that you need to make this work? You've pointed out that if you have a strong point of view and vision, that's above all seems to be the most important thing. But what else do these designers need, regardless of which brand it is?
2: Well, I think, of course, the vision is the most important thing. And I don't want to understate the importance of the vision because the vision at a fashion brand is the thing that everybody has to buy into. So back to that story about Alessandro Michele and Marco Bizzari, you know, the story, it's kind of almost fashion lore now. It's like Marco stepped into Alessandro's personal apartment in Rome and walked into this world and said, and you know, Alessandro was this guy from the inside of Gucci that nobody." knew from the outside. But in walking into the world that Alessandro had created in his own personal living space, Marco could see that this is a guy who had real vision. And that vision is what Marco bought into. And then that vision is what every single person who works at Gucci, whether they're in the merchandising team or the retail team or the marketing team, or indeed in in the front line of the store associate. You know, on the shop floor, like everyone needs to buy into that vision. So it's really, really important. And you can tell the difference. Like sometimes I go into stores and there's been a designer change and you can tell that even the store associates are like not excited about it. You know, and sometimes you walk into a store and they've just had a new designer enter the business and that first collection has hit the floor and they, they're excited about it. So that vision is really important. The other thing I'd add to that is someone who can take that design and vision and combine that with a really strong commercial product sensibility, what people in the industry call merchandising. There are certain designers who kind of have that inbuilt within their own process. And I would include people like Jonathan Anderson. He's a merchant. He goes into a store. He knows how he wants everything to look. He thinks of everything in like multiple colorways. Jonathan's a real product genius. I'd also say like people like Phoebe and Hetty, although they have completely different aesthetics. They're both really, really strong product designers, and they can take that vision and turn it into something that Phoebe sometimes calls "clobber," which is like a British word for like stuff you can sell right? And if you don't have the stuff you can... And we've all seen that where where a designer has this amazing vision and then you go into the store and you can't really figure out what to buy. That what to buy bit is also critical.
3: Yeah. I was thinking a lot about that when Kim Jones showed that ERL collection in Los Angeles and his greatest talent is product and knowing who to work with and how to position the products. And that feels like, I actually talked about this with Marc Jacobs when I did that most recent Mark Jacobs story because he's not a merchant and he recognizes that. And we were talking about how it feels like today more and more the creative director role, even if you are not one, you have to at least know how to work with a merchant. But if you have a merchandising sensibility, you're even more attractive, especially these bigger, bigger brands.
2: Totally. And then I would just really quickly add upon that, you have that design talent and vision. It needs to be extended not just to products, but store design, advertising campaign. You know, increasingly the social media presence, like all of that, is coming from the kind of vision that's created by the creative director. So it's not just about designing runway shows, right? That's the old days. Like in the old days, you know, I think when Marc Jacobs was at Vuitton, they actually had a really separate team that did all the commercial product. And Mark just did the really exciting runway stuff. Like more and more, you see that integrated now. Though I think at Gucci, they've recently made a change to kind of move to that structure. And I think maybe when a brand reaches that scale, that maybe becomes more necessary.
3: So say you you land the creative genius that you want and you think that they're the right person. There is a lot of operational stuff that goes into this, that has nothing to do with the creative side, that makes these appointments more challenging to actually get the contract signed. One thing that you brought up that's so important is what if a designer has their own brand already? How does a bigger company manage that? What are the things that punch list that that a corporation has to go through to make sure that this designer is ready and, and going to work well within the business itself.
2: Yeah. I mean, and these are not straightforward questions. I mean, you can probably count on one hand, the designers who have successfully managed to keep their own business and make that successful while also design a big house. Like very, very few designers are able to do that. Probably the most notable one was Carl Lagerfeld, who not only designed Carl Lagerfeld his own brand, but he also had Fendi and Chanel. I mean, that was like Carl was the ultimate fashion multitasker. And I think you could put Virgil Abloh in that boat as well, because he had Off-White and he had Retail Men's, and he managed to do that. And actually, that's actually a really interesting point that I should mention about Virgil, which is a slight digression going back to your last question, which is like, increasingly, these designers also have to be community builders. And if you think about what Virgil managed to do at Vuitton, like it was a lot of community building. It was a lot of like engaging new customers who traditionally been excluded by the luxury industry, black customers, customers who didn't find themselves or see themselves in those brands. And, you know, Virgil brought a lot, to that, so but you know, back to your question, it's really hard to do two brands. When Saint brought Anthony Baccarello in as creative director, he must have decided with them to close his business because he decided the the job at Saint Laurent was big enough. And you know, I don't think there's any shame in that. Depending on who you are, that's a really responsible decision to make because. As I said earlier, this is not a small job. Like, you, there's so much to do and try to do that for two brands. Like, there's very, very few people who can do that. Like, Jonathan Anderson has managed to do it. And I think that's exceptional. The other thing to keep in mind is it's not just about time, it's about who can create two distinct identities. There's certain designers like Tom Ford does Tom Ford, Hedy Sleeman does Hedy Sleeman. Carl Lagerfeld managed to play different notes. There'd always be a bit of Carl, but. So it's hard to find people who have the like elasticity to stretch themselves across different brands and create things that are genuinely distinctive.
3: Thinking about Anthony Vaccarello, it's been so incredible to see him grow as a designer at Saint Laurent. His namesake collection was great, but it was in some ways very much the same thing each season. You really knew what you were going to get. And he's exceeded expectations, I think, for a lot of people, at St. Laurent, and he might not have been able to do that if he was still managing this small business that was taking up a quarter of his time or half of his time or whatever.
2: Well, exactly. You know, sometimes having the resources and structure and just the security of a big house is better for a creative talent. Like being a young designer building a business is being an entrepreneur as well. And Nick, Lauren, you and I have talked about this ad nauseum over the years it's a lot of work building something new. And so for some people, it's the right decision to say, you know what, I'm going to stop and I'm just going to do this big, new, exciting project.
3: We talk a lot about data in this industry and data-driven purchasing, data-driven design, et cetera, et cetera. How much of these final decisions of who is getting this job is driven by gut instinct versus this person clearly has a track record for selling well? And is commercial or this person has proven that they know how to sell clothes or sell handbags or whatever, or is it really from what you've observed over the years, or is it typically more driven by, I just have a good feeling about what this person is capable of?
2: I think the first part of the decision, like putting the candidates together, creating a short list, you're looking for people who tick the boxes around experience and skills and track record and all that stuff. But I think ultimately it comes down to some kind of gut instinct. And that's not only about creative vision. I think that's these people who play these roles, they have to build teams. They have to be leaders. They have to have the character, like the resilience and the discipline to operate in this like very very competitive very very high profile role. And so like I think when a leader sits down and like I go back to Marco and Alessandro because I think that's just an example of when it really really worked out. I think he just got a feeling and he said this is it. And like Gucci is one of the biggest brands in the world. They could have gone for any big name designer, but at the end of the day they chose Alessandro and look what happened. Like that ended up being like this incredible success. So You know, of course you want all of the data to be right, but it's a bit of both. It needs to feel right as well. I mean, decisions need to make sense and they need to feel right. And I think that really applies in this case. Like they need to make logical, rational sense because you could say, okay, this person can do it. But at the end of the day, it needs to feel right too. And when those two things don't align, maybe it tells you something.
3: Imran, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thank you. This is fun. I like answering the questions instead of asking them. You were great. (laughs) Thanks, Lauren.
3: You've been listening to The Debrief, produced and edited by Emma Clark, Kate Barton, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio. I'm Lauren Sherman, and I will be back next Wednesday with a new episode. Thanks so much for joining us and be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You can join BOF Professional today with an exclusive 25% discount on an annual membership covering key industry topics from sustainability to technology to marketing with access to our case studies, live events, and iOS app. To get this special offer and benefit from 25% off of a membership, head to the link in the episode show notes or enter the coupon code DEBRIEF at checkout. Visit businessoffashion.com slash memberships
0: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash B-O-F, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-O-F to take your retail business to the next level today. shopify.com slash B-O-F.
4: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits.